This is the Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Now, here's Jason Jones. Aloha, everybody, and welcome to the Jason Jones Show. I am your host, Jason Jones, broadcasting from the really beautiful hill country of Texas. Today, the sun is shining. I just came from the Midwest. It was raining, and I got out just in time because my friends in Wisconsin, I was in Wisconsin for my dear friend's um, wake and for her funeral. Uh, I just I just got home just in time because I see that Wisconsin is is covered in snow. It's 70 degrees out. I went to uh, let the cat out this morning, and uh, the birds were chirping. When I came home last night at 2 in the morning, there were about 1,000 deer just roaming around the neighborhood. And uh, they seemed as excited to see me as I was to see them. I don't think they see a lot of human beings uh, walking around at 2 in the morning. Um, we're going to be interviewing Brad Phillips, on a, a member of his team, uh, they're in Sudan, they're in Sudan right now, serving the people of Sudan, and you're going to get an update. And again, this is why the Jason Jones Show exists. This is why the Jason Jones Show exists. So we're going to get an update on what is happening right now. And this again, like the last show, like the shows we did in Afghanistan, um, you would have to be a member of Congress in a closed door meeting to get this kind of level of update. So we're going to get right to it. But before we get to the interview, I want to share this. Um, in 2003, 2004, a friend of mine was working at the RNC, and he wanted me to come work there. And I was in graduate school and on a bit of a sabbatical from politics and was not eager to go work on a political campaign or go work for the RNC. But he said, you can have any state you want. You can have any state you want and uh, any battleground state. And I said, I want New Mexico. He said, it's yours. I said, okay, I'll take the job. So I flew to Washington, D.C. in early July of 2024 to go work for the RNC doing Catholic outreach. We get there. We sign our paperwork. Uh, we go to some meetings. Then they hand me a map, a cardboard tube with a map and a floppy disk. And the floppy disk said Wisconsin. And I looked at the cardboard tube and I took out what was in it. And it was, a, um, it was a map of Wisconsin. And I said to my buddy, I said, Martin, this is not New Mexico. Uh, this is Wisconsin. And he smiled and he handed me a plane ticket to Milwaukee. And I said, why am I going to Wisconsin? I asked for New Mexico and he laughed at me. And he said, have you looked at yourself in the mirror? Have you looked at yourself in the mirror? That's my New Jersey accent. I don't know if that's any good. Uh do you look like you're from Wisconsin? I mean, do you look like you're from New Mexico? You look like you're from Wisconsin. So uh, we're sending you to Wisconsin. They're going to think you're local. Uh, Bye-bye. And so I went to Wisconsin. And I wasn't too sad about that. Although I, I had this, I'd never been to New Mexico at the time, and I was really excited to go to New Mexico. So I go to Wisconsin. And my very first day there, I, um, I had a trick I used to do, you know, before Facebook and Twitter and all of this, you could parachute me into any community and any state. And if you gave me 90 days, I would have it wired. I would have it wired tight. The first places I would do is I would get a list of all the Catholic and evangelical Protestant bookstores. I would go meet with the managers and owners. I would hang out. I would get their lists of, of best customers if they had email lists or whatnot. 
And then I would ask them if they would host an event at the bookstore where I could speak. And then I would ask the people that came to hear me speak at the bookstore, can I, um, can you host an event in your church basement? And that's how I would knit together my team. So I'd give 10 speeches a day. And um, in 90 days, I would have the whole state wired shut. So my very first day in Appleton, Wisconsin, I go to a little Catholic bookstore. I walk in, pretend like I'm looking for a rosary or something, start a conversation with this just beautiful woman, the biggest smile, and she had the, the most, the thickest Wisconsin accent you ever heard. And um, I said, do you have a Magnificat? Because I actually needed a Magnificat. Um, it's the daily readings for Catholics with these just beautiful art, uh, beautiful works of art, and then the works of art are explained, and then there's these just great essays. And she goes, no, I don't carry the Magnificat. I'm like, you really should carry the Magnificat because then people have to come in every month to get their Magnificat, and then they buy a book, and then they buy a rosary, and then they buy, you know, da-da-da. She's like, that's a good idea. And I said, by the way, you wouldn't happen to have uh, a list of your best customers, would you? Do you have like an... Uh, a rewards program, or do you have an email list or something like that? She says, uh, yeah. I said, well, can, can I have it? <laughs> She's like, why would I give you that list? I said, well, I'm trying to end abortion here. And um, she's like, what do you mean? I go, well, I'm Catholic Outreach for the RNC. This election is very important, and I need a team. I need, I need to find my team. I need to find my tribe. She said, oh, boy, oh, boy, she says with her Wisconsin accent, you're going to get me in trouble. I'm not giving you that list. I said, well, what about this? What about we host an event, you host an event in the bookstore, um, and you invite all your customers in, and we'll put up signs around town, and I'll give a speech, and uh, I can sign the people up who they can choose to come, and they can choose to sign up. She's like, oh, boy, you're going to get me in real trouble. And I said, yeah, you know, I might get you in trouble, but it's going to be fun. She says, I'll do it. And um, that was the beginning of our friendship. She, she, uh, Ann Hawking was her name. She's my, my daughter's godmother, and her husband, Deacon Rick, is on the board of Hero, which our two programs are the Vulnerable People Project and Movie to Movement, and Deacon Rick um, and Ann Hawking, to me, were a walking homily. They were beautiful. When I first met them, they'd been married seven, nine years, nine years, seven years, eight years, something like that. And they were still kind of really different I, you know, Anne is just a ball of fire, full of life and energy and a ball of fire. And Deacon Rick is the kindest, gentlest, steadiest, manliest man you'll meet. Because to me, manliness is steadiness. Um, by the way, that's something I've struggled with. I'm not very steady. I'm a little erratic, a little wild. But, you know, as the two of them... As I watched as the years progressed, they seemed to become the same person. They became all of the energy and all of the passion, and, but all of the steadiness. And they have a little bookstore. They founded a little bookstore together called On This Rock Books in um, Oshkosh. And that, that bookstore became a pillar of the community. Uh, well, my dear friend, and after a five-year courageous battle with cancer, returned to our Lord. And so I was in Wisconsin um, for her funeral. But I have to say, first of all, she had was sent home 
uh, about a month ago and told she had three days to live. So my daughter and I, this is right when I got back from the Middle East, we, my daughter and I, her goddaughter, we flew there. And we had the best two days with her. And then she had three more weeks. And it was the most gentle landing. I pray that when I land this plane, it's like this because it was three weeks of laughing and um, all of her friends were there. Her best friend, Yvonne, by the way, is a good friend of mine, Yvonne Seaman, Yvonne Florzak Seaman. Um, I met her the same, at the same time and I gave them both tickets. I gave Yvonne and her husband and Ann and Deacon Rick tickets to the inaugural ball in 2004 and they both met uh, President Bush's inaugural ball and they became friends. And, um, and it was just a blessing. We, you know, we've had so much fun when, when Anne was going through a rough time with her chemotherapy, Yvonne and I, um, we, uh, you're not even going to believe this story, guys. Yvonne and I flew to, uh, I flew to Chicago. I jumped in Yvonne's car and we began driving to Oshkosh. I said, let's go to a Walmart or a Target and buy a bunch of clothes and some, let's make unicorn costumes because Anne Hawking is one of a kind when she walks into your life it's like you see a unicorn so let's just so we so she's how are we gonna make unicorn costumes I do not know we pull in to a a Walmart somewhere between Chicago and um Oshkosh and it's like 10 minutes before closing but what is the first thing we see as we walk in and it was not Halloween I promise you there was a rack just as we walked in the store with pajamas, full body pajamas for adult onesies of a unicorn. So we there was four, a large, an extra large, large, uh, medium, and small. And they, they, so I said, we're going to buy all four. And Yvonne and I snuck into the house and we gave Deacon Rick his unicorn costume and Yvonne and I wore our unicorn costumes, and we bought one for Anne. But we all climbed in bed. We fell asleep in their big bed, the three of us, four of us. And when Anne woke up, the look in her eyes, she said, am I dreaming? Wait, what's going on? And she was so confused to see us in unicorn costumes. Um, but I am so thankful for her life. And so why am I bringing her up? We're doing a show on Sudan with my buddy Brad Phillips. And Brad is my hero. Like, like Anne Hawking and Yvonne Florzek Seaman. And my heroes, I have met all of them through works of service to the vulnerable. If you want to find a beautiful community, if you want to be surrounded by wonderful friends, if you ever struggle with loneliness, wade out into the sorrowful world alone. Wade out alone and scared and begin to serve your local homeless, do prison ministry, go to your local pregnancy center. When you do this, you're going to open your eyes one day and be surrounded by unicorns. You're going to be surrounded by beautiful, beautiful people. And for me, such a broken, lost, confused individual, to be surrounded by saints is very important. That's very important for me. The other reason I bring up Ann Hawking is because I, the struggle between serving your family and your local community and then doing works of service and charity on the other side of the world, it pulls on us. 
And people will often say, Jason, why do you care so much about Afghanistan? What about at home? Well, what about at home? I've been on the board of my local pregnancy center for 30 years. What about at home? Every homeless person um, in my community knows my name, I can promise you. So I don't think it's neither or. I think both go together. It's impossible to do one without the other. And Anne Hawking's little apostolate, and it wasn't little, but what I mean by it, it was a quiet apostolate. What I mean by quiet is she's not doing press releases. She's not going on Bill Maher or Fox News. But she had this bookstore, this Christian bookstore, this Catholic bookstore that became the light of her community. So at her funeral, there were 36 priests. And Bishop Ricken from Green Bay drove down for the Mass. And I've never seen a church so packed. You would have thought it was a U.S. senator. But it was Anne Hawking, a saint, who loved Oshkosh, Wisconsin, and shared the gospel of Jesus Christ where she was with her husband, Deacon Rick Hawking, who was a deacon in their parish and is on the board of VPP. So they both go together. So with that, um, that's a long introduction that may seem like it has nothing to do with this. But A, I wanted you to know about Anne Hawking, who, is, who I adore, and her beautiful life. But also at the same time, it is very important that we knit, we are the mystical body of Christ. And it is very important that we are mindful of people who are suffering. Mindful of those who are suffering near us and mindful of those who are suffering on the other side of the world. And that's why I founded the, the podcast. So I'm going to get on with this interview um, with the, the powerful team over there, uh, the Persecution Project Foundation, led by Brad Phillips. And, um, oh, I need to remind you, this episode is being brought to you by the Vulnerable People Project, standing in solidarity with the most vulnerable people in the world. Um, go to thegreatcampaign.org. Look at the work we do. We are in our um, a drive, a donor drive right now. We're trying to double our monthly donors. So if you like the work we do, if you want to stand in solidarity with the most vulnerable people in the world, when the world is left, go to thegreatcampaign.org. Look around. If you like it, click on that donation button. Become a monthly donor. Also, this episode is being brought to you by Epoch Times. If you want to stay free, you got to stay informed. And Epoch Times is the best newspaper in the world. Um, and you can't watch Tucker anymore, all right? So go to iReadEpoch.com. You'll be able to watch Tucker soon, though. And use the code Jason Jones, and you will get your first month subscription for only a dollar. All right, here we go. Um, Brad Phillips. Persecution Project Foundation and team. It's the Jason Jones Show. Brad Phillips, welcome to the Jason Jones Show. Hey, Jason. Thanks for having me back on the show. No, we're grateful to have you. We know uh, a catastrophe is unfolding in Sudan, and it's not getting proper coverage in the media um the depth of the catastrophe is i i feel they're they're intentionally downplaying the tragedy and, and how catastrophic this can, can become so um, we're grateful to have you on thank you brother it it, it really is uh it, it really is a catastrophe catastrophe and um uh, unfortunately um it still looks like it's heading uh it's going to be worse 
uh, especially, um, I think since the last time I was on the show with you, um, we were talking about um, how shameful it was that America was really lagging behind all these other countries. Now I think 100 countries have evacuated people, uh, their people from Sudan, and the message from their government was, we're going to do everything we can to get you out, you know, try to get to the port, try to get here, try to get there, you know, that type of thing. But the message from our government was, um, uh, we haven't really heard from anybody that wants to get out, and um, um, we've gotten out our essential personnel, and everybody else just needs to uh, shelter in place. So that was kind of, a, um, I thought, a shameful communication. Um, thankfully, um, maybe as a result of this show, um, the U.S. government looks like they are starting to try to get some people out. I think they've had two rotations of buses um, that were accompanied by armed drones uh, to Port Sudan, where they were ferried by bus. And then uh, some people arrived in Nairobi yesterday. Um, and I think from Jeddah, they were went from, from Port Sudan to a ship and then transferred. Um, I don't know the exact route, but some of them ended up back here in Kenya. So we hope that they will increase their efforts to try to help uh, get Americans citizens out, whether they're dual citizens or not, I don't think there's anything in the Constitution that, that says that if you were born in Sudan and you're a naturalized American, that you somehow have less status or rights in the country. No, this, yeah, the whole situation is really bad. This dual citizenship, um, making that does not make you a second-class citizen. And it's, it's, it right. seems to be an unwritten policy of the Biden administration that um, that dual citizens get to the back of the bus. But am I wrong, Brad, to say that the dual citizens are actually the ones in the most jeopardy in these types of situations? And if anything, um, a triage would say put them to the front of the, the line. But if you're just going to be fair, uh, you are in I, line where you're in line. I think you're right because in these kind of countries, you know, um, if you're arrested, you know, uh, by a, a dictatorial regime, um, they don't care if you if you have an American passport, if you also have Sudanese, uh, Sudanese if you're born in Sudan, um, they're going to treat you with the rights afforded to Sudanese people, right. not with the rights afforded to Americans. So, you know, Sudanese uh, Americans probably, as you say, are, are, are more in jeopardy. I, I want to... Uh, I want to introduce to you my colleague. I have um, here with me my friend and colleague of more than 13, 14 years who's been working um, with us up in Nuba, who's actually from the Nuba. His name is Abdul Rajab, and uh, he's, uh, he, he won't tell you all the stories uh, about him unless you press him, but he's, he's, a, he's a courageous man. He's somebody who, um, as a young man, uh, went to the Holy Cross uh, school there in Kauda, which is a Catholic school there. He's a former Muslim believer. And um, while he was there in Kauda at Holy Cross, it was actually the day, I know this event, before I knew Abdul, I, I knew this event because it was the day that my son, uh, my youngest uh, son was born in uh, February of 2000 where his school was targeted and bombed by Antonov bombers. And 
many, many, many people were killed. Dozens and dozens of children and teachers were murdered by the same regime that is killing people today. Um, one of the victims was Abdul's brother, um, but he didn't know that until days and days after the event, because he, he, you know, he, the people that uh, everyone was traumatized. Abdul was really traumatized by this event. Um, in any case, Abdul's been working uh, with Persecution Project for more than a dozen years and, and helping coordinate and lead our efforts there in the Nuba Mountains. And right now, we've been working around the clock trying to figure out what we can do um, to help uh, some of the community that we serve that have families there in Khartoum. And we're having a flood of people starting to come back to the Nuba Mountains. So I just want to introduce you to Abdul, and uh, I know he's got a lot to contribute to our conversation today. Uh, Abdul, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, uh, Jason. Uh, my name is Abdul, as said by Brad, and I'm happy to be on this show. Well, you know, I'm sorry that what's what's happening uh, to your country, and I'm sorry for what you've gone through. What is it um, that you want us to know about the, the present situation in Sudan and um, how you fear things are going to unfold if the world doesn't uh, force an agreement? Yeah, at the moment, the situation is very uh, crucial uh, for somebody, you know, to uh, determine the outcome later. But uh, the fighting is still going on. And, uh, uh, you know, the air strike, you know, the, and the artillery shelling is still is still happening. Uh, this morning I was talking to people that I know that we are communicating day and uh, every morning and evening, and uh, they give me this report that uh, they still people are still hiding in their in their houses under their beds. You know, kids are really you know uh, getting into a very bad situation. There is no food. You know. Uh, uh, because people were not prepared, you know, to put the food uh, inside their houses or maybe to prepare for this uh, uh, war that happened in Sudan. So uh, we don't know what is going to happen in the future, but at the, at the moment as we're talking, uh, the situation is getting worse and worse. And uh, a lot of people now are trying to flee and leave the city. Uh, but again, uh, for those uh, that are able to, you know, to uh to cut up for the uh, the fare for the bus they're able to leave and for those that you know uh have not prepared anything now they're just uh left behind and they're just waiting you know for any help from anywhere or i don't know some of them are just are just waiting maybe maybe this war will will end or not so they're just there even some people going on foot we're hearing stories of people um who are just just trying to walk out. It's taking them four or five days to get down to South Sudan or to get down to the Nuba Mountains. Yeah. Will Will the Nuba Mountains be saved from? Will they? Is there any fear that the conflict can spill into the Nuba Mountains? Uh, I think at the moment no, because they are focusing on themselves, uh, the government uh, against the government. So the Nuba Mountain, you know, uh, is a separate. Uh, uh, is a separate uh, uh, region uh, which is governing themselves at the moment. Uh, but I don't think anything, you know, that this conflict will will cross to the Nuba Mountain unless maybe after they settle their 
dispute and then maybe they can if they want to fight the Nuba mountain they will do but at the you know at the current situation they are just focusing you know to fight themselves Jason let me uh let me add some context to what um Abdul's been saying you know uh in 2011 when uh Sudan was split into two countries at that point this Islamist regime which is now uh, split into two faces, uh, Hameti and Burhan, but the same, basically the same regime. They declared war on the Nuba Mountains and they started with a humanitarian, well, before the humanitarian, they started with the humanitarian blockade. They expelled, uh, there were 14 NGOs that were registered in Khartoum. They expelled them. They put in place a humanitarian blockade and then they slaughtered 4,000 Nuba, mostly Christians, inside the UN mission in Sudan compound in June of 2011. And then they started a, an aerial bombardment campaign on the Nuba Mountains. But despite um, the, that attack on the Nuba, um, many, many people continued to come into the Nuba because it was a region um, that was protected and, and, and liberated that was not under Sharia law. In the last four years, you had this transition period where people, many people were duped into believing that there was some sort of trans democratic transition taking place. And the international community put in charge uh, Islamist war criminals to be the shepherds of that transition. But there were many Nuba people living in Khartoum because, you know, there's the, the economics of life are better in Khartoum. Um, and the government was, you know, picking off people on a smaller scale, arresting some people, arbitrary arrests, detentions, killings, torture, things like that, but nothing like on the scale of what's happening now. Now all those people from the Nuba, probably, there's, uh, you can correct me a little if I'm wrong, but I think there's more than two million Nuba living in Khartoum and in the other cities that are controlled by the government. Now all those people have to run back to the Nuba mountains because, um, uh, it's a life or death situation, and they and they have to go back uh, to, to this area that was once the target, and now has become uh, is becoming a safe haven. And that's a lot of folks, and the, the the coverage in the media is not commensurate. I have to imagine if there was a European yeah. country where there were an ethnic minority, two million having to flee for their lives, it would be wall to wall coverage. Yeah. I think that's fair to say, right? Oh, I mean, those are just among, you know, there's about 5 million Nuba. So two, I don't know if it, this, these numbers are very imprecise, but in, in Khartoum, you have about eight, somewhere between eight and 10 million people. Um, and all of those people are at risk and they're all trying to figure out what to do. And some people are making their way down to South Sudan. Some people are going to Ethiopia. Some people are going to Egypt. Some people are going to Chad. Some people are going to Libya, and uh, uh, many other people are coming to the Nuba Mountains. Um, and um, it's a it's a regional, it's a global, it, it's going to have global impact, but regionally it has a huge impact. For example, Egypt is heavily dependent on Sudan for water and food. Um, the Nile is their source of water, which is the life of Egypt. That's why they, it, their alliance with the Sudan government is so important against Ethiopia, against this uh, GERD, this dam that's being built by Ethiopia on the border with Sudan. And then secondarily, food supplies. Um, Sudan is their biggest supply of livestock and of grains and of food. Um, 
And then, you know, Uganda is a uh, depends heavily. They, they support, they, they export a lot of coffee. Um, Kenya exports a lot of tea to Sudan. Um, the whole region is going to be, of course, there's the oil from South Sudan, which has been stopped. So the entire economy of South Sudan is in jeopardy. So the, the, the whole region is impacted by this war. And we have 16,000 Americans there, less the 300 or so that have been evacuated this past weekend. And um, But as you say, because maybe they have dual citizenship, they're not uh, they're not getting the same status of uh, recognition by our government right now. Are there any governments or transnational organizations that, that have stepped up and, and seem to be taking the lead? It, it looks like there's a bunch. I mean, the Saudis actually have evacuated a lot of people, and they facilitated evacuations from dozens. I'm told that there's like 100 different countries that have had people evacuated. The Chinese, the Saudis, the Brits, the French have all basically said, we're going to do everything we can to get our people out. And they've also assisted other uh, people from other countries. Um, Abul was talking about, um, and he can say more, but he was talking about how hard it is for people to get bus fare. You know, the bus fare to Egypt used to be about 100 bucks. Now it's about $600. And people, and the prices keep going up because of scarcity of fuel, because of insecurity, and the risk that the bus drivers are taking. And most people don't even have $100 hidden under their mattress, let alone 600 bucks, multiply that times five or six people in your family. So most people are stuck. And um, and as he said, they're stuck inside their house. If they come out of their house, there's the danger of being shot by a sniper or being shot in crossfire. Um, Abul, you can share about, we were talking with one of our friends yesterday, what happened in his neighborhood of Mbada. Yes, uh, uh, Jason, uh, uh, as I was speaking to somebody who's coordinating uh, the evacuation of the uh, of the Nuba people from Khartoum, uh, maybe to head towards the Nuba. So he was telling me when he was going out uh, to go and and, uh, and search for the buses and maybe coordinate uh, some uh, other activities related to this. Uh, when he got out of the house and he was moving from just uh, a distance of 200 uh, meters from from the house, he sees a body uh, uh, just on the ground, and then he moves on again. 100 meters, another body. So he said when he was walking till to reach to the bus and he was going into the safest place, he saw like five bodies on his way. And uh, he was telling me that I really, I'm really uh, scared living here in Khartoum. I'm just, uh, we just want to do this one to help people, evacuate these people. And then from there, I will make my way. If I can, uh, can get my way up to the South Sudan border in Rennes, then I go to college, then from college now I will travel to Juba, and from there maybe I can I'll, I'll stay there a little bit, then maybe I return to Nuba. So you can see even the people that are living there are really getting uh, scared uh, to leave because they are seeing all kind of bodies and uh, uh, hearing like uh, yesterday also a certain lady that I know in Khartoum, uh, when I called, yes, uh, she was called uh, Regina when I was talking to her. And she told me uh, yesterday there was a uh, shelling and uh, a bomb fall into the house and killed like five people that they are just a uh, neighbor, uh, their neighbor. So he, uh, she was really, uh, you know, getting scared and he said, I really wish 
uh, you can organize this uh, uh, evacuation first I get out of here because I can't I, you know I can't take it anymore the the terror is uh, it's incomprehensible the, the idea of artillery landing in your neighborhood and seeing dead bodies, I, I can't even begin to comprehend. Yeah. It's one thing to experience it as a soldier on the other side of the yeah. world. It's the other. It's another thing to experience it in your neighborhood. Yeah, and, and uh, as he mentioned, you know, this is a place where the fighting hasn't, he's talking about, you know, there's Khartoum is divided into three, basically three cities. There's what's known as Khartoum. There's another place called Bari. And then and then Omdurman on the, on the other side of the river. And most of the fighting has been in Bari and Omdurman. And the people in Khartoum, there's been a little bit of fighting. So this lady was in the section where there's, uh, and this young man was in the section where there's almost no fighting, but they've been hit by shells and so on. And those people in that section are able to move around a little bit, and some of those buses are located there. But in the other places, um, it's like a Hotel Rwanda level of corpses in the street where you're literally walking over um, bodies to get from point A to point B. Um, Abul has shared with me some of the videos and things that have been uh, forwarded uh, from some of those areas, so it's it's the level of this catastrophe is is can't, can't really be overstated. And even listening to some um, some of the operators or whatever who are involved in, and you know a lot of these people who are involved in in helping people in Afghanistan, um, they just said it's a it's a totally different scenario um, in. Uh, in, in, in Sudan compared to Afghanistan as far as trying to get in and out, trying to to uh, organize, um, you know, safe quarters and things like that because of the level of the fighting. And these are, you know, both sides are like armies, you know, and they have been massively supplied with munitions, with um, uh, aircraft. You know, the Egyptians provided aircraft recently. Um, the funny thing was Hameti was complaining that he was the one that paid for the aircraft with some of his, and now it's under the control of Rahan and he's bombing, being bombed with. But um, there's there's all there's there's a heavy amount of ordnance and munitions and weaponry and soldiers um, deployed in this uh, war where both sides are intent on the total destruction and annihilation of the other side without regard to who's a civilian and who's not. And as soon as um, the uh, interest or the stories about foreign evacuation starts to dwindle and go down, we fear that the level of, uh, of killing is going to go up. And, and even as they've had several rotations of these 72-hour ceasefires, there hasn't been a day where there's really been an effect or an hour where there's been an effective ceasefire uh, in Sudan. Is there a battle? I mean, you would think that these two generals would be trying to win the hearts and minds of the people of Sudan. What What is the strategic value? What, what do they think they have to gain by terrorizing the civilian population? Or is it just thoughtlessness that they're just there? Um, it's not no, the intent. I, but I, I, I will- I will say that these guys are both um, seasoned war criminals, and they're very good at behaving one way and talking another way. And so is Omar al-Bashir. 
and um, Mohammed Hamdan Daglo Hameti, uh, the leader of the RSF, um, has been very clever in his public relations. He's he's made he and he was for the last four years. You know, he was responsible for atrocities the last four years, and so was Burhan. But whenever anybody would raise a concern about massacres or atrocities or um, any kind of misbehavior, he would always say, yes, this is terrible. We're going to investigate that. These are rogue elements that are, and, you know, we don't believe in that. We believe in democracy. We believe in this. We believe in the process. And he's doing that very effectively right now. He actually has a Canadian and a French um he has a, a public relations, two two different public relations firms that are representing him and advising him on, a, on his talks. And if you if you follow him in the news, he's trying to position himself as um, the the voice of uh, of uh, democracy against Islamism, against the radical Islamists. But the reality on the ground, and someone who respects human rights, and someone who is supporting you know corridors for people to get out and be evacuated. But the reality on the ground is that his people are killing and looting and murdering and raping and committing all kinds of crimes and um, without regard to human life. And, um, you know, that's that's consistent with their behavior in Darfur from the early 2000s up to their behavior in Khartoum the last four years. Um, and he's he's just a very he's. He's very. He's been very good with his uh, with his speech and very bad with his behavior. Burhan, on the other hand, uh, is trying to communicate his position, which is that he is uh, defending the stability of the region and of Sudan and the interests of Sudan against this rogue um, private militia led by Hameti. Of course, he created Hameti. He armed Hameti. He killed alongside Hameti. Um, and they fell out over power sharing. You know, the media is saying that they fell out about integration of forces, but really it was about power sharing. And um, uh, so Burhan is, is uh, it, he says a lot less, but he's dropping um, bombs from planes and from artillery all over civilian neighborhoods. And yes, you know, RSF is embedded in those areas, but Burhan has no regard um for human life and uh yeah he's got both of these guys have got a long history and a long track track record of, of behavior and that should disqualify them and should have disqualified them four years ago and unfortunately the international community um gave them legitimacy helped them rebrand um coddled them um helped them um, position themselves to where they are, even after they pushed out um, uh, a very good man named Abdallah Hamduk, um, who was selected by the civilians, who was basically operating as prime minister under house arrest. They pushed him out, they arrested him, and then they brought him back in, and he was basically at gunpoint acting as prime minister and, until until he was able to get out and leave. Uh, that government, and we allowed it, and we still talk to these guys as if there's some way that they're going to be um, the the the, uh, the midwives of uh, democratic transition. So we we have a lot of responsibility, and um, uh, we can speculate about why we're doing the wrong thing, but we've been doing the wrong thing. Brad, but does our State Department believe that Democrat 
uh, democratic transition is in our self-interest, or are they just there to advance what they perceive our interests to be? And they're as equally thoughtless to the civilians as these generals. Yeah, no, I mean, um, our government, you know, the, the executive branch of our government, which is represented by the State Department, um, unfortunately has been um, schizophrenic in its uh, approach to Sudan. On the one hand, it's acknowledged um, all of the wicked behavior of that regime. On the other hand, it continues, before this war started, it continued to give legitimacy to, to this sovereign council, which was made up of the regime that committed the crimes. And instead of investing on the side of the street, instead of investing on the side of the, the real victims of terror and persecution who've been suffering for 35 years, we invested in a very uh, fatally flawed process. And it brought us to this point, which wasn't really a surprise um, if you if you know the character of these two men. If you could if you could advise Secretary of State Blinken, what would you suggest he do now? And I and and I, this is for both of you, gentlemen. This question. Let me let me give that one to Abdul. To Abdul. Uh, yes, to me, I will. Uh... I will advise that uh, they should first uh, uh, put uh, a real ceasefire, a permanent ceasefire, then uh, they bring these two people uh, into you know, account. And uh, both of them maybe, uh, they, should, they should be removed and impose uh, a, a real person that will take the country forward, but not these two generals. You know, Jason, what uh, Abdul just said is really the key, is the crux of the issue. The problem right now is they're trying to, um, rather than what Abdul suggested, which is that recognize these guys need to be removed from this process. So if there's a ceasefire, the point of the ceasefire is not to put these guys back in charge of a framework of transition. The point of the ceasefire is to stop the killing and to impose a, a transition that is led by civilians and where there's an opportunity for the, 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 the perpetrators of terror and war crimes to be taken to account and to be held to account. One of the things that Abdullah Hamdak did um, during the time when he thought he had authority was he exposed the fact that the military controls 90% of the state resources. Um, and um, he exposed the fact, he, 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 he put in place a, uh, uh, a committee, it was called the Tomkin Removal Committee. And Tomkin was the state, uh, the official patronage or corruption, the, the legal corruption in Sudan where um, Omar al-Bashir paid off um, some of his opposition who were like the official opposition and made them partners in his crimes of theft. And hundreds of billions of dollars were stolen. And um, so one of the demands of the street was, you know, the demands of the street were collapse the system, get rid of this whole system. Don't just change the faces. Don't just change who's sitting in the chair. Get rid of the whole system. Have religious freedom. Separate religion from the state. End Sharia law. There's more than 180 Sharia laws on the books. And the last one was... Um, have justice and accountability for the perpetrators of war crimes and theft. And so as soon as um, 
Hamduk started pressuring uh, to expose the theft, the grand theft by the state, that's when they had the coup. And they said they did it in the name of preserving stability in Sudan. And um, unfortunately, the international community, while they took note of all of these different truths in different, in, in different comments here and there, they never ever challenged the framework. They never ever challenged the fact that these guys have, should not be, cannot be reformed. They cannot be given legitimacy. They do not have the capacity to do what is right for Sudan. And the victims, the people who went to the street, are the ones who's, who, who, who we should be defending. They're the ones that we should be siding with. So if I would take Abdul's comments further, I, I would just, I would agree with what he said. And I would, I would just say that we need to clearly and explicitly be on the side of the victims of genocide and persecution and terror in Sudan and completely um, um, reject any uh, uh, legitimacy by these guys. Because even this government now, uh, since the, from any point of view, since the October 2021 coup, this is a completely uh, illegitimate government, and it's only being propped up by us and by the Egyptians and by the Saudis and by the Emiratis and other people who are invested in spoiling Sudan. What do they have to gain from continuing to spoil Sudan? We see Pakistan continually spoiling Afghanistan. You know, what, what, what do oh, these... Spoiling. I'm talking about the spoils of war. They're taking all of the resources of Sudan, oil, gold, water, um, food, everything that Sudan produces, um, these people are being rich by. I mean, there's a number of countries that are competing to control a small port south of Port Sudan called Swakop. Russia wants it. America wants it. Turkey wants it. Everybody wants it. Um, so, um, you know, a lot of people are benefiting um, at the expense of the freedom and blood of everyday and average Sudanese. And in, and in the city of Khartoum and um, those three sections of Khartoum, the people that have been living there have been in a bubble for the last 35 years. They've had all kinds of opportunities and almost a normal life. And only if they have relatives outside of the center are they were they really aware of the bloodthirsty nature of the regime because they were living sort of a normal life in, in, in Khartoum. And so now all of the terrible things that the people in the periphery in places like Darfur and the Blue Nile and the Nuba Mountains, all the, and the Bija people, all the things that those people have experienced for 35 years, now has come to the center. And so all the complaints that those people were making are now coming to the surface again. And some of those people, I believe, who maybe weren't paying attention before, are certainly paying attention now. So on the other end of this tragedy, there, there may be more hope than going into it. I mean, there's always hope, and uh, we don't know what the outcome of this thing is. Certainly, uh, there's great opportunities, uh, and there's great terrorism and courage um, happening right now. We know a lot of people who are working on the ground to save people's lives. We know a lot of people in the Nuba community, in the church community, um, in the street resistance who are delivering life-saving help and 
food and medicine and shelter and and trying to to uh, secret people out of the city to to, to safe areas. Uh, there are some great people in that country, and they're worthy of support. And well, you've been supporting them now for over over two decades. Um, can you put us into the mind of the the young men that are trapped in uniform on both sides of this conflict? Well, um, I, I want, I, I'll say I'll say a little bit, and I'll pass it to Abdul. But I would say that um, there's there's a couple of categories of people trapped in uniforms. You know, there's you know one of the things in Sudan is you have all of these they're called OAGs, other armed groups or militias. And there are many, many, many militias that have been formed in the last 35 years. Um, and uh, right now, the two main uh, sides that are fighting each other are the RSF and the SAF. But outside of that, you have many, many other militias in regions like Darfur, in the Nuba Mountains, in Blue Nile, and other places, where you also have people under arms who may or may not be on either of those two sides. Within those two sides, on the RSF side, um, you know, one of the things that Hameti did with all of the wealth that he stole from Sudan um, with the help of the Wagner Group, with the help of, uh, of uh, even the Saudis and the Emiratis, I, I think, and, and Libyans and whatever, is that he's bought a lot of mercenary forces from a half a dozen other countries, like Mali, like Chad, Libya, Niger, Cameroon. He's brought in Islamist forces. So these guys aren't even Sudanese, but they're Islamists. And they were basically brought in as Mujahideen fighters by Hameti. Um, at some sort of a price per head. And so their allegiance is not to Sudan. And so they're just in on a looting spree, you know, killing and looting and raping and stealing. Um, on the SAF side, I'd say, you know, you have a lot of just regular people in the army. The rank and file are just regular Sudanese that were uh, in the army. Um, and they're a mix of people of of different ethnicities. There's more than 500 different ethnicities in Sudan. Um, but the leadership of the SAF, you know, Burhan is the commander in chief, and at the officer corps level, all of the officers in the SAF, the Sudan Armed Forces, are Islamists, and they are, are from a specific ethnolinguistic segment of Sudan, which are the Northern Nile River Arabs, or the Riverine Arabs, or really these are Nubians, not to be confused with Nubians. And the Nubians um, uh, who control the SAF are Muslim Brotherhood people. So um, uh, those are those two groups. Then you have uh, many other different militias. Even on the Islamist side, you have different state security forces that belong to the National Intelligence Service. Then you have the Popular Defense Force, which is a militia that was used by Bashir to go and rape and loot and kill. And then you have, uh, so you have a, a number of militias uh, on the government side. And then you have other militias that are more tribally based, um, uh, OAGs or militias. And um, so it, it's, Sudan unfortunately has been in war such a long time that for, especially people outside of the city, in those peripheral areas, um, they've grown up in war. Abdul, would you like to answer that question from your perspective and, and sort of uh, give us a little thought into the, 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 young, the young men who are in uniform? 
Yeah, I think what Brad said, I confirm it, that uh, it's all right, and this is what exactly is happening. Uh, you know, the South and the, uh, the militia group for, uh, uh, from uh, SRF, uh, they, they have really created uh, big issues in Sudan, whereby, you know, they start recruiting, uh, uh, you know, the militias uh, uh, from different countries and bringing them uh, to Sudan, especially uh, this uh, General Himiti. Uh, he's bringing people from outside Sudan that are not even the Sudanese itself, and now uh, bringing them in now is causing a very big issue. There is a lot of fighting, and uh, they were moving around to different states even, not only Khartoum. Uh, before uh, the war that erupted in Khartoum, they were fighting in other states. Even they come to South Kordofan and they were fighting in some uh, uh, some section of uh, the South Kordofan that was controlled by the SNM uh, North, Legawa. Uh, Legawa. And uh, you can see uh, this militia is all over. So he brought them at just he wanted for his gain to you know, to take control of the power. That's what he's trying to do. And uh, now, uh, moving on until he reached Khartoum, and now you can see this is what happened at the moment. And now people are not even able how to solve this issue. Both of them, both of these generals are in the same place, and they're fighting each other. That's why it's making it very difficult uh, for even the international community or the U.S. to intervene and maybe stop stop this current war. I'd like to maybe ask you a, a, a closing question, unless you have more to share, which is painting in, in broad strokes. Um, where would you like to see Sudan in 20 years, and how? And what's the path to get there? I think the path to get there, as I said before, uh, uh, is first, at the moment, we need to uh, stop this current war, uh, what is happening uh, in the capital city in Khartoum. Uh, the international community and other stakeholders, the U.S., uh, they have to impose uh, uh, a ceasefire uh, into Khartoum to stop this fast, and then uh, from there, uh, you know, they they have to call these two people. Uh, people have to talk on this issue, and uh, uh, for for us to see Sudan going forward, we need uh, this. Uh, uh, a civilian government to be put in place, but not, uh, you know, bringing these uh, the armed generals and putting them uh, into into the top seat. So we all of them have to go back to the barracks and take care of the, you know, uh, uh, the border and uh, and uh, the security of the country, but not uh, to rule. So if we take them away and we put the civilian government in uh, place then we will see Sudan maybe moving forward. Otherwise, if we don't do that, then there is no peace. It will continue. It will be recurrent. I, I think I would just add, Jason, that um, to his point, um, uh, in, order for that hap in order for that to happen, you know, some of the people that are still invested in helping both sides, like whether it be Egypt, whether it be Haftar and Libya, whether it be Saudi Arabia, whether it be um, uh, Emirates, some of these investors uh, who are uh, have, so have supported both sides, even though they're giving lip service to peace now, they really are the ones who have the ability to exert, or exert some pressure on those two generals, and they they control 
some of the purse strings, and we are also part of that as well. And so um, that has to be really taken seriously. And an obstacle that that you know that that is part of that that has to be addressed is that you know these guys. One of the reasons that they're going to fight to the death is they know if they lose and and, and are alive, they're going to be held to account. They're both both of these guys um, are war criminals, and either one of them uh, should be locked up for their crimes. And so um, there's a lot of investors in Sudan and stakeholders, and, and some of them are the stakeholders in the framework that, that really need to step up right now um, uh, to, to affect a positive outcome. Yeah, this is the great sorrow in countries like Afghanistan, Sudan, Iraq, that there are so many outside stakeholders that have more influence on what happens in those countries than the people who live in those countries. This is the great sorrow. Yeah. And it's our, I, I see that it is our role as citizens of this powerful republic uh, to sort of be the nose inside the tent for these people so we can help them exert influence in the country that is theirs. Yeah. Let, let me say again on the positive side, I mean, as terrible as this is, one of the positive things that I see is that so many people who have been blind in the past to the real character and nature of, these, of this evil system um, have an opportunity to wake up. And some of them are waking up and realizing that they were wrong in their assessment about, about the system in Sudan and about the future in Sudan, and about what the choices are for the future. So I really pray to God that he's going to use some of this tragedy and suffering as a catalyst uh, for positive change, especially from uh, these outside forces that, that really do have a lot um, invested in Sudan. Um. Can you share with us why I get this question a lot and you probably get this a lot and it, it, and it makes my blood boil. Why should we care? It's the other side of the world, Jason. We have uh, fentanyl pouring across the border, our, you know, inflation, our economy's collapsing, the FBI's inside our churches, uh, the CIA stealing elections at home. Why should I care about what's happening on the other side of the world? Yeah, well, you know, um, a Abdul and I represent a Christian ministry, a faith-based organization called Persecution Project, and uh, you know our mission and vision and purpose is directly connected to um, uh, solidarity with the persecuted church and with the victims of persecution and genocide. And um, you know, inside of Sudan, where you have uh, this country that has been uh, this regime and this system, which has been a factory of, of radical extreme Islamism and has been an exporter of terror around the world, has been training people on all the battlegrounds around the world where we're fighting our war on terror. Um, they also have a very strong church, which for that reason is the number one public enemy of the regime and has been the number one target of persecution up until the point of this war. And so there's many, many reasons uh, from, a, from a practical point of view or geopolitical point of view that we should be concerned as American citizens because it does affect us. I mean, uh, what happened on 911, so much of it started in Sudan. And um, what's happened since then, so much of it 
has been cultivated by this factory of radical Islamism inside of Sudan. And, but beyond that, as believers and as Christians, we should care uh, because, as I said, in, I think the last show is that we're all part of one body if we're, if we're Christians. And when one part of the body suffers, all suffer with it. And there is a, the, the fifth column in Sudan is the church. And they're the ones who are rescuing people right now inside Sudan, regardless of creed or ethnicity. Um, and they're the ones who are who are really um, challenging um, uh, that whole system of thought and Sharia law in Sudan, and we need to be standing with them. Yeah, Abdul, would you like to add to that? Yeah, I think Brad summarized everything. Yeah. Is there anything else you gentlemen would want to share? Oh, no, Brad, I want to ask this. You... You said it is a drive-by, but I don't think a lot of people, that, I'm sure some folks are like, what is he talking about? When you said uh, 9-11 in many ways started in, in Sudan, can you share that with us? Uh, um, you know, many of these people in, in 9-11 were, were Sudanese or trained in Sudan. Um, and, of course, Osama bin Laden was based in Sudan. Um, so, uh, you know, the seeds of Al Qaeda were in Sudan, and um, uh, the seeds of 911 were in Sudan, and um, the USS Cole, and um, uh, you know the the twin embassy bombings. These were started from Sudan. So um, these guys have been the, the, not only practicing terror and genocide against their own people. Um, they've been exporting terror around the world. They've been training and cultivating that um, way of thinking. And uh, it's to our shame that um, that we have uh, given them a pass on it. You know, I was I don't know if this was in a personal conversation or I, w- I was reading a memoir. I read the guy's memoir and I talked to him, so I don't I don't want, I don't want to say his name, but um, someone involved in the struggle against Al-Qaeda in the 90s and through Osama bin Laden's end, said that the decision was made, the United States was offered um, Osama bin Laden. But but we said, let's just send him to Afghanistan. He'll be less trouble there. So we actually cursed Afghanistan by sending him back. But the original concern was he's too dangerous in Sudan. Sudan is a much too dangerous place to have Osama bin Laden. So just send him back to Afghanistan. So there's that confession of how important Sudan is and how dangerous it is to have these rogue elements running wild in Sudan. Not just, of course, the first victims are the people of Sudan, but the next victims will be your grandchildren. Yeah, I mean, uh, the two countries that were most closely... Uh, related to what happened in 9-11 were Saudi Arabia and Sudan. And um, Saudi Arabia is still heavily, you know, from when the British, when the, when the British left in 1955, um, the Saudis were the ones who established the Islamic banking system in Sudan, which is still there up to now, which helps finance all of their behavior. And the Saudis are the ones who have been invested in the last four years in preserving 
the establishment in Sudan. And so, um, and, uh, you know, somehow we, 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 uh, we overlook a lot of things. And, um, But yeah, there's a lot of reasons why we should be we should be more concerned about what our government policy is towards Sudan. But as Christians, for sure, um, you know, it's a very strategic country, and there's there's a the, the biggest church in Sudan comes out of the Nuba, and the Nuba um, were among the first were the first converts to Christianity in Sudan were in the Nuba Mountains in 1917. More, a little bit over a hundred years ago, and now you have more than three million people who identify as Christian, and 98% of them are Nuba. And the other ones that are being evangelized by the Nuba, Catholic and Protestant, are from Darfur, from all these other ethnicities, are, are churches that were planted by Nuba churches. So um, that's why I believe. This area of uh, southern Kordofan, the Nuba Mountains, is such a strategic area. That's why I believe our investment in standing with those people has been so important. And right now, it's being proven to be very important because it's the one place in the entire country where people are running to inside the borders of Sudan, where they know um, then they're not going to be persecuted because of their race or their faith. Um, and however hard they might have to struggle, at least uh, uh, they're not going to be attacked uh, by their government inside of the Nuba Mountains. Will there, is there, a, is there enough food? I and mean, will they, what, what is food security going to look like when you have this flood of people into the Nuba Mountains? It's going to be a lot of challenges. Um, and uh, Abdul could speak to that. I think on my side, I would just say that, you know, the, the basic necessities of life, water, food, medicine, shelter, um, are going to be really, really tested. Um, there was already, you know, there's been a humanitarian blockade since 2011. And so only groups like Persecution Project, Samaritan's Purse, the Catholic Church, um, German University doctors, there are only a handful of groups that have defied the blockade and stayed and in, in are serving in the Nuba Mountains. So the, the people in the Nuba Mountains are really underserved. And uh, for sure, um, it's going to be a really testing time. Well, what do you think? Yeah, just and uh, uh, the issue of the food, as uh, you say, uh, we are going to have a really uh, big problem. Uh, there are going to be a shortage of food uh, because what is there in the Nuba Mountain? Uh, uh, it's just uh, you know, uh, just a small amount to where you know. Every year, the Nuba Mountain may be keep for themselves. Uh, but now you can see with this outbreak and, uh, uh, of uh, this conflict in Khartoum, many people are going to turn up to come to the Nuba Mountain. Uh, we are estimating uh, between 1 million or 1.5 million for people to come within these two months. And now there are going to be a big uh, shortage of food. Uh, not food alone, but medicine as well said, and also the shelter. Because if these people come, there is nowhere they're going to, uh, you know, to stay. Uh, this is a big number. So some of them are just going to come maybe to just sit under the trees uh, without the shelter, without, you know, getting sick. There is no food. And the, the little food that we have at the, uh, in, in Nuba Mountain is going to be shared 
And we had a flood last year, which wiped out all of the food production in Mizo Mountains in 2022. Yeah, so this is the situation that uh, we are going to, uh, to be in uh, in the next few uh, few weeks ahead of us. You know, Brad and Abdul, when I when I came to Washington, D.C. 25 years ago and I knew what I wanted to do with my life, I went and I worked for a large organization and in my free time I would ask other large nonprofits that did the type of work I was hoping to do if I could go volunteer at their office or shadow their president and I did this with several groups. But Brad, it was in meeting you and, and, and seeing how you managed the uh, PPF, the Persecution Project Foundation, how your organization was structured, how you did your job, how you really um, had uh, the best tooth-to-tail ratio of any organization that I ever saw, that, that I, I, it gave me direction to how I wanted to found my organization and how I wanted to organize our efforts. And especially, Brad, you, you predominantly work with people from the places from the place you're serving, Sudan. You have a, a um a great model and you're a great steward of donations. And so when people donate to you, they can have complete confidence that they're getting the most for their dollar because all of us want our dollars. They're little soldiers of charity that we want to send out into the world. And we want each dollar to get as much works of service done as possible. And you set the example for me on how to structure my organization. Um, and I know that with those groups that you've named, um, you're at the forefront of service in a place now that is going to become the center of suffering in the world. So how can people who are listening, um, you know, we've been supporting you. My family personally supports you. VPP now is, we're also supporting you in this work. But how can our audience... Um, and this is the best audience when it comes to this type of work. How can they join with you to meet what is going to become for you, Brad? I have anxiety just thinking about how hard the next year is going to be for you and your team. How can people listening stand with you as you're serving um, Christians and others? Because the body of Christ, the mystical body of Christ, if you forgive me, let me use Catholic uh, an expression or theology, Um we are to be like Christ and to ameliorate ourselves, we, uh, to, to immolate ourselves, to ameliorate the sufferings of the world, not just Christians. But first, you have to love yeah. your own. And your team is, is serving everyone in Sudan. And so how can people stand with you as you're serving uh, the body of Christ and others in Sudan? Well, Jason, you're very kind in your comments. I appreciate it. Um, I think, uh, you know, all of us can do something and, uh, we're trying to do our part. If people want to find out how they can get involved, they can visit persecutionproject.org. They can also visit newbookbreakfastclub.com. Um, right now, uh, medicine and water and shelter are things that we're trying to address, um, for shelter. It's as simple as a $40 tarp that can cover a family. Uh, it's as simple as a, an action pack, a kit of uh, a basic household supplies that can help a family who's fled Khartoum. Um, it's as simple as a few dollars invested in repairing a borehole so that you can have water. It's as simple as a few dollars so we can add to our, our stocks of medicine 
at these 200 facilities that we supply or at Jugabe Referral Hospital. So there's many, many different ways. Prayer is the number one thing that we need and that these people need. God knows the end of this, and he knows how to supply all of our needs and all of the needs of the, of the people in Nuba. So um, I appreciate you. I appreciate so much VPP and your leadership and your partnership with us in this podcast, which is a great and tremendous um, platform for um, engaging people, educating people. And so the first thing that all of us need to do is we need to get informed, which is what you're uh, um, allowing us to be a part of on this show. And I'm really grateful for that. And uh, yeah, so I just want to say thank you to you, Jason, and, and also to your listeners. Well, I can promise you that I'm going to be praying for you, uh, VPP and our team. Or we have our, our weekly meeting today. We're going to start it off in prayer. We're going to pray for you and your team. And the audience is going to pray for you guys. Thank so, you. thank you, Abdul. Anything you want to share as we as before we we go? Uh, what I want to share is just to uh, uh, for people to put uh, to put us in prayer uh, uh, for people in Sudan to get peace and for this uh, war to stop. And uh, also, you pray for us uh, to get uh, for God to provide resources for us to be able to, to serve the people uh, that will be coming from uh, Khartoum to the Nuba Mountain uh, without shelter, medicine, and food. So uh, you just, uh, you pray, you pray for us. Well, you gentlemen can definitely count on that, all right? I know you guys are overwhelmed with work. I, I thank you for taking the time uh, to come on the Jason Jones Show, and uh, we look forward thank to you, having brother. you back in a couple of weeks. And by God's grace... And a miracle, uh, I pray that um, the, the next time you are on, it's because there was a, a shocking uh, a peace agreement. And, um, yeah, so that's my prayer. Amen. Amen. All right, God bless Thanks, you. Brother. God bless you guys. Thanks. All right, guys, this is, this was another show uh, where you need, to, you need to take notes. This show and the last show is the most comprehensive coverage of, of what you're going to get on what's happening in Sudan. And I know that all of us do not need to be experts in everywhere in the world. Um, but, the, but the tragedy, well, what's, what's sorrowful, um, and maybe I'm going to say this. Uh, no, I'm, I'm going to make it. No, uh, I want everyone to read my book, The Race to Save Our Century, because uh, John Zmirek and I laid out in 2014 how if there's not a radical course correction in the world and in American leadership in the world um, soon we're going to see a cascade of catastrophes genocides and wars and it's been nine years since the book came out and like on cue it's been a cascade of genocides wars and foreign policy failures um, catastrophic foreign policy failures from the premature withdrawal from Afghanistan, from Iraq, the rise of ISIS. Uh, um, now see what we see what's happening in Sudan, the war between Russia and Ukraine. Um, so, yeah, if you go to thegreatcampaign.org today, um, any, everyone who donates today, um, that's not even a good way to do it. I'm going to have my team set something up ASAP, and I want to give my book to everyone who donates. Uh, any donation of any size, I want to put it in your hands, the race to save our century. 
Um, and because what that book does is it, it does seem to be a bit overwhelming. We're overwhelmed at what's happening in Afghanistan. We're overwhelmed at what's happening in Yemen and in, in Lebanon. It's, it's in Sudan. It becomes overwhelming. And then here we are. We're overwhelmed at home. Things seem to be unraveling at home. You have Fox News booting Tucker Carlson. And you're like, how does that connect to Jason? What's happening in Sudan? It's connected in this way that it seems that we're, lo- we're losing faith in our own institutions at home. And so that takes away our bandwidth. And we're just kind of like exasperated. And it's hard for us to look on the other side of the world. But as Brad said, um, first and foremost, we're the body of Christ. And Christians are suffering. They're suffering in Sudan. They're suffering in China. They're suffering in Pakistan. Um, but of course, it's not just our co-religionists that are suffering. And I say just us, a large percentage of this audience is Muslim. And, and this is something I was thinking when Brad was talking. The f- violent extremism, the violent extremism in Afghanistan or in Iraq or in Sudan the first victims of violent extremism there are Muslims, first victims. The first victims of the violence and extremism of the CCP are, of course, who? The Chinese, the Han Chinese first, then Tibet, then the East Turkestan, right? Um, and if we have our own extremists, and uh, I don't mean to offend anyone by comparing them, but the LGBTQ trans ideology, this is an extremism it is violent. We're seeing children castrated. The first victim of this um, Skittles coalition uh, would be children here in the United States, but of course it spreads around the world too. And so to knit together a consistent culture of life and a civilization of love means we work hard at home, right? I'm very much engaged in local politics. I'm very much engaged in my local pregnancy center. I'm very much engaged in my local parish. Um, and it actually through there and, and through my engagement locally, it opens up a lot of opportunities for me to share around, serve around the other side of the world. And conversely, so many times people close to me just yesterday, someone messaged me close to me, a friend, Hey, I have a family member. Um, you know, who would imagine a friend of mine from my Catholic community. I have a family member, uh, my brother-in-law's relatives are trapped in Khartoum. Can you help? And we're trying to help. So it, 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 it's knit together. It's not either or. And um, yeah, I'm babbling. I am babbling. Uh, go to, uh, I'm going to put Brad's, the Persecution Project Foundation's website and the Nuba Breakfast Club website in the show notes. I'd really like to ask that you become a supporter of Brad's, become a supporter of PPF, uh, stand with the people of Sudan, also with the Vulnerable People Project, the sponsor of the show. We are in the middle of our campaign to double our monthly donors. And um, we are halfway to our goal, over halfway to our goal. Go to thegreatcampaign.org, become a monthly donor uh, of any size. A cup of coffee, $2 a month. Uh, Breakfast, $10 a month. Whatever you can do, but these monthly, if everyone listening to this show right now became a monthly donor, we would not only be able to meet all of our responsibilities to the communities that we presently serve, all the safe houses, all the food distribution, but we would be able to respond uh, quickly to serve our coalition partners 
uh, like we were able to step in in a large way and help uh, PPF this week. And I, I'll tell you more about that when it's done. Uh, we don't want to talk about it quite yet. Um, and that's thanks to, in a large part, the listeners to this show. You've greatly expanded um, our ability to serve. But if everyone listening, if all of you listening right now um, went to thegreatcampaign.org and became a monthly donor, um, that would be it. We'd be we'd be able to serve all the communities we're presently serving. So please do that. Also go to Epoch Times. Go to iReadEpoch.com. Use the code Jason Jones, and you get your first month subscription for just a dollar. And uh, I'm going to tell you, I'm such a fan of Epoch Times. I've been traveling so much since the fall of Afghanistan. And this month, by the way, if you're like, Jason sounds a bit off. I am a bit off. I just, uh, I literally got home last night at 2 in the morning. Um, we had to do the show early in the morning our time so we could get Brad on in Sudan. Um and uh, but it's been relentless. I'm on a plane tomorrow. I was on a plane yesterday, and in the in the month of May, I am almost on a plane every single day. But when I, when things slow down a little bit, what what I really want to do is do a daily show um, on Rumble where we read Epoch Times together. For those of you, because I I'm such a fan of Epoch Times, I want everyone to read Epoch Times. It is the best newspaper that there ever was. And I have the digital and the print subscription because I love throwing the paper on the table and it has comics and I just love reading the paper with my family. So I thought I love reading it with my family. I can read it with you. So this is something I'm going to do. I don't know when, okay? Maybe June, I'm hoping. I'm crashing on my book, by the way. I have a book coming out early next year on Rocky Soil, a spiritual autobiography from someone you may not meet in heaven. Um, it's on my relationship with God from birth till today, even though I was an atheist until my early 30s. Um, when I look back, I clearly was thoughtful of God and had a relationship with him, even though I would tell people I didn't believe in him. I always believed in him. I just had, you know, I was, I'm, and the seed is still on rocky soil. So please pray for me that a bird doesn't come and, and, and peck that seed away. All right. Uh, that was the longest rambling, most incoherent ending I've ever done. I think I held it together for the interview. Um, by the way, because not only am I traveling a lot and not sleeping, uh, I'm battling to give up coffee. So there you have it. All right, until next time, which I hope is tomorrow. This has been another episode of The Jason Jones Show. I think I sounded a lot like Biden in that ending. All right, God bless you guys. Aloha. This has been the Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Mm-hmm.